Hi, and welcome to Kiskadi, where we explore women identified, gender nonconforming, and gender expensive communities across the Americas and how we are creating a post pandemic future grounded in justice, abundance, and hope, and how you can be part of it. I am Bia Vieira, inviting you to join us in this journey and in action. Today I'm having a conversation with Bambi Salcedo. Bambi, if you don't know Bambi, you are in for really a treat. Bambi is such an inspiration, not just an inspiration, but she is just a fantastic human being. So thank you so much, Bambi, for being here, for having this conversation about you, about the Translatina Coalition, and about our work together. I wonder if you can start with um, helping us understand your journey to the Translatina Coalition. Bueno, uh, primero que nada, a mí me gusta siempre darle gracias a mi creador, mi poder superior, por darme la oportunidad de tener un día más de vida y de poder uh, explorar el mundo tal y como es. Um, for those of you who were not able to understand, it is a customary thing that I always do, um, that I acknowledge my creator, my higher power for giving me the opportunity to breathe one more day, you know, acknowledge the beautiful and amazing people who are joining us today. Uh, and obviously, uh, thank you so much, Via, for um, the opportunity to share space with you and to share a little bit of my um, experience. También quiero dar gracias a las personas que nos acompañan hoy en día. Um, I guess my journey, well, I mean, I think it's it's important that we give a, a little context to people about, you know, how is it that Bambi Salcedo came to be. Um, and, you know, and obviously through that, how the Translatino Coalition came to also to exist. Um, I'm Bambi Salcedo, and I am a very privileged translatina, mujer, migrante, uh, indocumentada, who also has the privilege to lead a national advocacy organization that is based in Los Angeles, um, that also provides life-supportive and life-saving services to uh, transgender and confirming people in Los Angeles. Um, so I'm originally from Guadalajara, Mexico. I was born and raised in Guadalajara. Um, I, you know, I was like many children, right, uh, who come from poor families from, you know, um, yeah, from lack of education, families from you know, individuals who are from the outskirts of the city, but come to the city to try to find a better way of life. Uh, and that was certainly the experience of my mother and also my father. Um, and, you know, they got together uh, when they were very young. And obviously, as they were trying to discover themselves, uh, my father ended up leaving my mother before I was born. And so my mother had to raise three of us on her own until she met someone, you know, who then became my stepfather, who was very abusive and very, um, he was just enough of a person. Um, and mm. I myself 
trying to also find myself uh, in in a home where there wasn't really any type of support of, or love, although there was love, but my mother had to work all day and there wasn't really, um, you know, the love that I needed, let me just say that. Um, mm -hmm. And so as a result, I, I started mm -hmm. using drugs when I was about eight years old. Um, you know, I became one of those children who grew up on the streets, um, you know, many, some of those children that you see in our countries, right, uh, who, um, you know, and vendiendo chicles, you know, we call them chicleros uh, or boleros. Uh, so I became one of those children. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I mm -hmm. was also going to school. So I was living this multidimensional life. I, you know, early on learned how to survive in the world, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I was going to school and using drugs and studying, doing, you know, um, street criminality, if you will. Um, and then um, when I was about 12 years old, I started being institutionalized. I started being um, arrested in juvenile halls and from 12 to 16, I was just in and out of those correctional facilities. Um, and obviously my mother didn't really know what to do with me. By then my father was already living in the United States. And so um, I happened to meet my father when I was 15 years old. Uh, he came to Guadalajara and he was looking for us. Um, and he came to visit me and then when I got out that one time, my mom said, like, well, maybe you should go to your dad because, you know, you're not doing good here. Um, and obviously through all of this, I was going through my own gender confusion, if you will, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I also started dressing up with my gay friends at that time. There was, um, I met a group of people um, who who created a fun club for Menudo and, oh, and Menudo. Um, <laughs> right so I was um you know I was at that time I was a little boy and um you know I also uh I was part of like um this dance group que eran como dobles de menudo right and so I was supposed to be tricky you know so anyways <laughs> So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it was like this two, you know, different types of lives. Um, obviously, I could not ever be myself, right? Because I am the second child uh, from my mother. Uh, so, you know, at that time, I was obviously a boy. And so there was a lot of expectations also on me about, you know, and also me wanting to support my mother, trying to you know, give her a better life, right? Um, and so I had to pretend to be someone who I was not. Mm. Then I came to the United States, um, like many people, right, across the border uh, with uh, no documentation uh, and went to live with my father. Um, but I, was, I also could not be who I am, right? Um, and also, unfortunately, you know, my father was already, um, you know, 
married with someone else. And so that person also didn't want me in her house. So I was obviously, you know, that there was, I feel like there was for a long time, there wasn't mm-hmm. a space for me. And so, you know, and then when I came to the United States, I started um, using heavier drugs, right? Um, then I discovered um, heroin and cocaine and I started like injecting myself. Um, I started using intravenously. Um, and so, um, then I only lasted for like about two years, you know, uh, all co- mm-hmm. because my I couldn't stay with my father's family, so I went uh, up north in California to work at a tortilla factory, um, and so then I was also exploited as a minor. Um, didn't have the opportunity to go to school like many other young people at that time, um, and. You know, I, it was just too much. I could only just lasted a couple of years mm-hmm. there um, because I just had this hunger to be myself. And so, since I grew up on this on on a big city, um, then I decided to come to Los Angeles, and that's when I started my transition at 19 years old. Um, and you know, at that time, I felt like I could do that because there wasn't nobody around, right? Like my family. I just want to recognize Bambi. One, that thank you so much for sharing and being so generous um, about sharing your story and just recognizing that I, I, I've known you and I've, of course, known your work and known, um, heard you speak. And it, it is clear that you have a light within you and that you have always had this vision of of being yourself and how to get one of the things that strikes me is that from your growing up you you were quite invisible and now through your work and through the coalition and through your voice you know you are totally visible i see you and others see you. And I just want to acknowledge and thank you for sharing um, this important part of your story with us. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, you know, it just sort of like going back to what you're saying, right? Um, you know, the work that we do at the Translating Our Coalition, right? Um, when we started in 2009, really was because there there was a lack of um, visibility and also a, a voice for the specific needs of translatina immigrant women at the time who were living in the United States. Um, and so that's why we we started really. Um, at that time, there were two national translate organizations, recognized translate organizations that obviously were doing amazing work, but unfortunately we're not including the needs issues of our community, you know? And so that's how we started. We really started because of a need, right? Um, and also recognizing um, that, you know, I am one of the privileged ones, right? Who have had the opportunity to overcome many horrible experiences and and overturn those into opportunities, right? 
and also saying, because I had the opportunity to reform my life and seeing life, not just my life, but the lives of the people who uh, who are my friends, right? Who I once stood up in a corner with doing sex work, right? Um, that the same things that I've, I lived and survived, unfortunately, right now, even are still the same things that they're going through, right? Um, the violence, the the homelessness, the drug addiction, the sex work as means to survive, um, you know, the sexual abuse, the incarceration, you know, all of those things that I I have the privilege to overcome, um, mm-hmm. you know, also saying that because I had the privilege that it is also my responsibility, right? Um, you know, to, mm-hmm. just to do the best that I can in order to support my people. Wow. And you are doing so much and the coalition is doing so much. And I know uh, from experience that your work has saved lives. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. And Bambi, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned a little bit about that some of the experiences you've had and your community has had, it continues even now. Can you talk a little bit about the impacts of COVID and how really that impacted the trans community so deeply? Um, well, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, in this pandemic really has impacted the whole world, right? Um, and, you know, there is obviously, you know, the numbers don't lie, right? That says that specifically people of color, Black, Latino, and Indigenous people, right, are the people who are most impacted by this unfortunate disease. Um, but when it comes to trans people, right, um, I, I, I can definitely make the argument that Trans people is is the population that has been impacted the most um, through this pandemic, and I say that because you know one it's important for us to understand and recognize right where trans people were situated within our society even before this pandemic hit right um, understanding that you know in 2020, right? The trans people at that time were still making $10,000 a year, right? Um, Which makes us one of the poorest people in this country. Um, The continuous discrimination that we face while trying to gain employment, or even those who are privileged enough to have employment, the the harassment and discrimination that they face at their employment uh, spaces. you know, and access to services, right? Again, that is why we exist as an organization, right? Because as we were trying to organize people across the United States, um, we were seeing across the states that, you know, trans people were not having access to the basic things that they need, right? And so we also started providing direct supportive services as a response to that need. And so, and then, 
you know, the, all these other things, right? All these social issues that compound, right? Um, against our community, right? And then we have this global pandemic that hits, right? And to where, you know, the whole world shut down. Yet, um, you know, we as an organization made a decision to maintain our doors open, right? Because, you know, we knew that many members of our community were not even going to have um, access to food because we, we also serve lunch every day. And so even if it was food that we were going to give to our people, then that's what we were going to do. And that's exactly what happened, right? Um, and so understanding where trans people were situated mm-hmm. before this pandemic and understanding how this pandemic has set back the trans community, the trans movement, you know, um, the gains that we have gotten in the last few years, right? Uh, nothing was a priority. Our community was not a priority, right? And so we know that, you know, it's going to take some time for the trans movement to even recover, right? And, and just to give you an example, most people, right, uh, in the United States, most people got some type of relief from the government, right? Like even in the previous administration, they got, uh, I think some people, what was it, got like $1,200, for instance, right? The majority of trans people didn't even get that. Even now, this aeration of, you know, mm-hmm. this new administration, right? Like the people got 600 you know, at first, and then they also got, they're getting $1,400, right? Like the majority of trans people didn't even get that. Why? Because the majority of us don't have employment. Therefore, we don't make taxes. Therefore, we don't get that relief, right? And even here in the state of California, the governor allocated $76 million to support undocumented people, trans people who are undocumented, were not even able to receive that type of relief because of the requirements that we're asking for people to, to have access to that. And so, you know, that, and that's just to give you an example, right? Um, right. And also thinking about you know, the infrastructure development that needs to happen in the broader trans movement and the broader trans community. Um, It only has been in the last five years that more trans-led groups and more trans leadership has been developed. And I can, you know, also say that we as an organization um, are one of those, right? Because we got our first grant in January of 2016, right? Um, and it's only been the last five years that we that we have been operating with this service provision arm of the organization um, with this idea of supporting our community directly so that we can also at the same time do the policy changes and the um, the institutional changes that needs to happen right in order for all of us to have a better quality of life. Um, so there's so many different aspects on how this pandemic has really uh, impacted trans people in the trans in the broader mm-hmm. trans movement. You know, Bambi, I know that the coalition has been doing a lot of policy work and it's been, you know, even during um, the Trump administration and at the state level. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it's been like to be part of the 
you know, the policy work, what, you know, what it has taken. And also I have to tell you that in such a short period of time, you know, so many folks from the Trans uh, Latina Coalition have really done so much in terms of particularly in California and the and the policy, the state legislature. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think um, uh, policy has always been part of the work that we do, right? Because uh, when we initially started, you know, as an organization back in 2009, we started with this sort of like way of thinking of like, how do we change and transform the institutions that marginalize our community, right? Like, and then at that time, again, um, you know, we were thinking about trans Latina immigrant women, right? Um, and so with that frame of mind, right, like how do we influence and change policies, right, that um, marginalize us and oppress us, right? And so that has always been part of the work that we've done. Um, now, when we started getting funding, right, uh, initially was to support our community directly and really serve um, as a model for the other chapters, right? Like, so the service provision part of it started here in Los Angeles, and now there's three other chapters that have now like a service provision space. Um, but I have to recognize also that um, our manager of policy in community engagement, um, their name is uh, Michelle de la Cuadra, you know, they went through the Women's Policy Institute. Right. Um, and so obviously that helped them to understand a little bit of, of policy. I mean, Michelle, I think is 23 now, you know, and so they were like um, 20, I think, when they first started here, you know. And so. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of our policy work has been led by um, by Michelle de la Cuadra, um, obviously under my direction. Uh, and so, you know, right away when we when Michelle started, you know, we developed a policy agenda, right? And so for us, like I, I'm a visual person and I'm a, you know, like I'm, I'm a strategic person, right? And so, you know, I'm all into like strategic plans and I'm all into like, you know, let's follow a plan, right? And so that's exactly what we did. And, um, you know, our plan focused on five different areas. Um, which is the immediate needs of our people, right? And so through that, um, last year, well, the year before, we started um, doing budget advocacy. Mm -hmm. So, because, you know, we're also learning about all of that, right? And so we learned about the governor's budget. And so we started advocating for $100 million to be allocated across the state in five different on those five different areas, right, that our policy agenda focus. Um, obviously, we were not successful the first year, you know, but we learned a lot. And so then we were going to go at it the following year, and that was in 2020. Through what we learned, you know, we, we learned that we needed to get legislators that will, you know, who support our efforts. And so we reached out to um, our local assembly member, who is Miguel Santiago, and who he wanted to sign on to it, but he only wanted to sign on to one thing, right? And that mm -hmm. was the health piece of it. 
And um, and then he said that he wanted to turn it into a bill. And so we're like, oh, hell yeah, you know, like even better, right? Uh, and so, so that's exactly what we did, you know? And so then that's how the um, Assembly Bill 2218, which is the Transgender Wellness and Equity Fund, came to be. And then through that also, um, you know, obviously power of the people is really what supports all of that. And so we also form a a statewide coalition of trans-led and you know organizations across the state. And um and yeah, and then in the middle of a pandemic, right? In 2020, we we crafted a piece of legislation, we introduced it, we push it, we mobilize, you know, all the way to the governance desk and um, Assembly Bill 2218, the Transgender Wellness and Equity Fund came to be a law, um, a historic piece of legislation. For the first time in the history of the state of California, a piece was introduced by trans people. Um, I mean, there has been obviously other legislation specifically to support other trans people, but, but they were not introduced by trans people themselves. Yeah, so we had that victory. Wow. That is a fantastic victory and so impressive. You know, and that, again, I think is the light that you and everybody carries in terms of visibility, in terms of we're here. We need to be, we, we are part of our community. So, you know, here we are. Yes. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, because of the pandemic, right, like there was, there was 15 millions attached, $15 million attached to this piece of legislation. But because of the pandemic, the money was taken off the bill. And so there was, there is a bill um, that it became the law, which is a transgender wellness fund, but there's no funds in it. Right. And so right now, what we're doing is that we. Well, we, we have to make that right. Well, yes, yes, we and we are. That's why we need all the support, because right now we're going through the advocacy, um, the budget advocacy process in which we are advocating for those 15 millions to be reallocated to the fund. Um, obviously, we need more money, but even if it's just for that piece, um, of legislation, you know, that money needs to go back to it. But we're going to continue to, you know, to do more, right? Um, we know that both the state, the city, and even the county, right, like they have a lot of money and they really need to invest in, in trans lives, right? Uh, it, it's their responsibility. Um, and we are just, you know, that's one of, one of the things that we're doing. We're just... Um, holding people accountable for what they need to do. Yeah. I wonder also, Bambi, if you can talk a little bit about some of the cultural changes that have happened, uh, some that you, uh, the coalition ha has worked on, but some that has happened nationally. And 
And also, if you could think about if there were a couple of changes culturally that could happen, what would they be that would really transform the trans community? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, with, there definitely needs to be a cultural transformation, right, in order for our society to really, one, understand who trans people are, right? Uh, but also do what needs to be done in order to better the quality of life of trans, gender non-confirming, and intersex people, right? Um, so those two things need to happen, right, in order for us to transform the culture. Through the work that we do, we, we believe that, you know, in order for us to have better qualities of life, we need to transform the culture. And so, you know, we do that in different levels. Um, one is, um, you know, through educating people about um, the work that we do, for, for example, right? Um, in fact, you know, for the first time in the history of our organization, right, in the five years that we have been operating, providing services, um, we thought that it was important for us to let the world know of the services that we provided, for instance, in the middle of a pandemic, right? And so, um, so that's a way to influence, um, you know, cultural transformation, right? But also through through passing legislation, right? Through creating, you know, videos and campaigns, for instance, right? Um, you know, we do educational sessions, right? Um, we like right now, for instance, we're doing COVID prevention, you know, and we're doing educational sessions about that. Also, you know. In the middle of the pandemic, we were able to free Kelly. Um, Kelly was a young, she's she's 22 now. Yeah, she was 21 at that time. Um, young Salvadoreña trans woman who was detained in immigration detention for no reason. You know, um, they um, they were just holding her there, saying that she was a threat to society just because she got arrested um she was arrested for a um, minor crime not a felony but a minor crime but she was arrested in luciana and so luciana immediately turned her into ice um and then ice was just saying that she you know she was a threat to society when she was a young person she didn't even you know do anything you know to really keep her there so they kept her there for like almost three years um, until we won, you know, and so they they got her out, you know, like we got her out and she's now, you know, thriving, you know. Wow. And how did she get connected? How did you get connected with her or, or her with, with the coalition? So, you know, the, the work that we have done over the years, and again, that's how we started, right? Because um, I think I think it's important for us to recognize um Trans women who are immigrants living in the United States also include those who are in immigration detention. And so our work has always been to support trans women who have been in immigration detention, even before it was fashionable. Now there's all kinds of groups saying that they're that that's what they do, but you know, but that's another thing, right? That's <laughs> uh, another thing. <laughs> yeah, but we're the ones who actually you know, started doing that work, right? So we always have been connected 
um, to trans women who are in immigration detention. And in there, you know, they share our information. So they always write to us. Even then, we were doing work of like picking them up and linking them to services when we were not getting any type of funding, right? Uh, but then through the advocacy efforts and because of the horrible experiences that trans women experience in immigration detention and because of the advocacy uh, that we have done, you know, ICE in 2015 decided to make, you know, this transgender pot, right? And the first transgender pod that they started was in 2015, and that was here in the Santana jail. Um, so the Santana jail had a unit which was contracted by um, ICE. And so they had that pod for trans women there. And so um, we used to do like visitations and we would pick them up and, you know, do the work that we do. And so from there, that's how people shared their information inside. And then because, of, again, because of the advocacy efforts, you know, they sh- we got to shut down the Santana ICE detention, and then they ship people to Cibola, New Mexico, or to the Subiela Correctional Facility. Uh, and then because the work that we do and, you know, the work that other organizations do um, in partnership with us, we were able to shut down Cibola, New Mexico, and then they transfer people to um, to Aurora, Colorado. So that's where they have the transgender pod. But yeah, but that's how, you know, like, so that's how we support people. Oh, thank you, Bambi. Thank you so much for, you know, all the work that you are doing, that the coalition is doing. And thank you so much for, you know, being present for so many. And I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you. Of course, um, I'm just, you know, I'm just a servant to the people, you know, I, you know, I always say that um, even though I am the CEO of the Transatino Coalition, you know, uh, I always refer to my title as a community elevated officer, you know, because it has been my people who has supported me to be who I am and where I am today. Before we close, can I, and we... We don't have to talk about this, but Bambi, I, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about your relationship with Mexico, with Mexico and Guadalajara, and, and after all these years in the United States, just the kind of feelings, experiences, and, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not, like, a relationship, um, you know, through my imprisonment or my incarceration times, you know, I, I spent about 14 years of my life in and out of prison uh, here in California. And because of that, um, you know, I was supported four times. So I always found a way to come back. Um, and so, you know, I have not had the opportunity to go back to Guadalajara, um, which I'm hoping that that changes sometime soon. You know, and I'm I'm hopeful that that's going to change soon. Um, you know. So, anyways, I was able to, um, well, or unfortunately, but also fortunately, I was a victim of a hate crime in 2015, yeah. and um, I was um, assaulted. Um, so through that, um, I um, you know. We apply for a U visa, and so my U visa was accepted, 
And so basically right now, I'm just waiting for them to send me uh, a green card. So I'm hopeful that, um, you know, that that happens soon. You know, according to my lawyer, um, right now, like back then when I, when my application was accepted, the waiting time was um, three to five years and we are now on the five year mark. So, you know, I, I'm just waiting actually to happen. Um, but also, I have heard that now people who apply for U visas right now, their waiting time is seven to 10 years, which is longer. But I guess I was lucky enough that that happened to me then. Um, so through that, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to gain, you know, some type of status. Uh, and so that I, I can, um, then I'll be able to travel and, and hopefully build a relationship. Um, actually, I mean, I do have a relationship with, with a very dear friend of mine whose name is Pati Betancur, who she's one of the founders of Red Latinoamericana Trans. Yeah, Red Lat Trans. And so, yeah, so she's one of the co-founders. So she lives in Guadalajara and she's like my dear friend. And she comes here. So that's how we interact with each other. Um, and actually, you know, the model of the Trans Latina Coalition really it's, it's sort of like, uh, it's an inspiration of La Red Black Trans. Yeah, so so it's also important to recognize that. So yeah, there's a relationship, but indirectly, yeah. I guess. Well, when the green card comes, we'll have a party. That'll be amazing, yeah. And I mean, hopefully yeah. everything, you know, See. Um, gets in touch, some type of normalcy, and then, yes, we'll definitely get to celebrate. Yeah, for sure. Bueno, Bambi. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. If you want to learn more about our guests, their work and campaigns, and how to get more engaged, go to medium.com slash and follow us on social media. We would love to hear from you. Kiskadi is executive produced by Bia Vieira, produced by Wanda Costa of Starlet Productions. Original music composed by Maxine Solomon. Original artwork by Yasmin Hernandez, Wanda Costa, and Nicholas Schultz. Graphic illustrations by Kay Dugan Morale of Illustrating Progress. A very special thanks to all of our guests and supporters, the Women's Foundation California, the Culture Change Fund, and you.